my name is Teemu Arina. Welcome to the Biohackers podcast. Once again, we have a great episode coming up. Today's guest is Olympic athlete Andrew Steele, who is also the head of product at DNA Fit, that specializes on uh, DNA testing for fitness and nutrition. And uh, if you're interested in personalized medicine and how to use information from your DNA and maybe also from your blood work, I mean, this is going to be a great episode for you. But before that, I want to remind you that we have the Biohacker Summit coming on 21st of May in London. That's very soon, within a week. And uh, Andrew Steele is going to be speaking there. So is Dr. Tommy Wood. So is Dr. Tamsin Lewin. So is Ben Greenfield. So all the great biohackers are going to be over there. So if you want to join the biggest and greatest biohacker gathering in Europe, you have to be on 21st of May in London, UK. We have a great show coming up. There's also on 18th of November, we have our Helsinki event, which is our main event. And uh, it's going to be close to a thousand people. So you don't want to miss that one. Um, we are also releasing the Biohackers Handbook chapter on nutrition. That's 170 pages based on 450 plus studies, mainly meta studies from the last few years that really dives deep into the optimized way to look at nutrition, cooking methods, and different ways to really take your nutrition to a new level. So you want to take a look at that perhaps. It's on biohackingbook.com and you can still get it at pre-order special price minus 25%. So uh, that's going to be valid for one week. So, But without further ado, let's uh, jump into the extremely interesting discussion with Andrew Steele. He looked at some of my results from DNA Fit and we geek on some of the details on genes and we talk about the implications of those and how you can use also blood testing in conjunction with your genetic testing. So if you're interested in any of this stuff, you definitely want to listen to the whole show. And if you are right now listening to this on iTunes, you may also want to go to our YouTube channel and uh, take a look at um, the video version because we show some of these results and uh, we are going to be definitely expressing them aloud but uh, some of the images might be of interest to you so you may want to take a look at that one so uh, let's jump into the show shall we so tell me a little bit about your background I, I if i understand correctly you've been running 400 meters uh, for great britain and uh, you're one of the most experienced athletes on the on the british team uh, yeah, I guess I, I probably would be. I'm a very old man when it comes to athletics uh, right now. So um, the, this will most likely be my last year of um, professional track and field, uh, being my 12th season um, of sort of competing at, at, you know, at a good international level. Now, I've had, I've had some, some very good years and then some not so good years as well in my career. And a lot of that learning, which we'll talk about and I'll talk about at the summit, is um, is what led me to discover a little bit more about you know my, myself and, and end up leading me down this path, which uh, in working in genetics and specifically the genetics of uh, fitness and nutrition. So uh, some some months ago, I interviewed one of the Olympic athletes of the Finnish team uh, on ice skating, and he said that. At the level where you are competing for the Olympics, I mean, even small differences make a make a big difference in results as well. And uh, obviously, everyone is training to the best of their knowledge in terms of regimen. So, how central do you see things like genetics? So, can you be gifted for a specific sport? Well, I think so. 
away from the track, you know, the, the work we do at DNA Fit, I call myself like the, you know, officially at the head of product. So I sort of really control how we apply the genetic data to real life or to action to for, for people. But really what I find myself, my real role is a lot of the time is, is head of like managing expectations. Um, and you, you, you mentioned a key phrase there, which I think from the very start, it's very important um, for me to address, which would be that, which would be that genetics is not for talent identification. Genetics is very much not going to tell you whether you can or can't be good. Uh, or whether you are better being a football player compared to a marathon runner, for example. What we can do is we can make the training that you do for that or how you're trying to reach your fitness and nutrition goal a little bit more personalized using that genetics. And I think I always ask myself why people want DNA data, why people want genetics to tell them what they will be good at or won't be good at. And I think pop culture over the years has played a role from like novels like Aldous Huxley and, and then into Gattaca and so on. People trying to choose like that our genetics controls who we're going to be, etc. However, um, we do use it just to really tweak and change how we get to the goal, whatever the chosen goal may be. So that's really how we, um, how we use it. I always like to tell people, and if you're, you know, interested to, to hear now, to see me, like I always like to tell people my experience as a 400 meter runner and how there was different methods to train, just because it lends some very good context to how we're all very different. Even at my level, when I'm amongst people that are all working towards the very niche specific goal of running the 400 meters very fast, we all do things quite differently. Um, and so I want to use that data, like to to understand, like everyone from elite athletes down to the general health and fitness user, how we all respond differently to things and that the genetic factor is an important part of that. Um, so where to begin? Um, uh, without, without boring you too long. Um, so if you've ever had the misfortune of running a 400 meter race um, <laughs> in your life, uh, you'll know, anyone that's listening will know, it's, it's notoriously one of the hardest events to train for because it's a unique combination of like elite sprint ability and elite endurance ability at the same time. You have to sprint, but for a long time. So um, it uses up all the possible energy systems that we have, and then you've still got about 100 meters to run. So um, so it's quite a difficult effect to, to get right, actually, in training. And there's two schools of thought for this. You can train like an elite sprinter who then does some endurance training on top of that, or you can train like a middle-distance athlete who does some sprint training on top of the middle distance foundation. So there's like a sprint foundation method and a middle distance foundation method. And I used, I spent the early part of my career in the run up to the Beijing Olympic Games in 2008. I spent that early part training in the middle distance method. I sort of did a lot of mileage. I did probably unnecessarily so. I did a lot of endurance training and then I tried to add in some sprints and power training when the weather got nice in Manchester, which rarely did, um, uh, but it was somewhat effective for me. I made the Beijing Olympic Games at the age of 23. Um, I ran 44.94 seconds there and made the semi-final, and that was an important benchmark as a 400 meter runner to run under 45. And then we came fourth in the relay, uh, controversially just behind the Russian team, two of the members of which have been since implicated in the um, 
WADA anti-doping scandal. So I may, and they're retesting their samples now, this summer I may actually get my medal from 2008, <laughs> which is great news. I mean, eight years later, I'd rather have it eight years previous, but still I'd love to get that medal at some point if uh, if they do retest the samples and they're positive. So, um, so I had like a quite a positive early part of my Olympic career. The first four years, I trained a certain way and saw some success. But I had some clear weaknesses, you know, like I had like, um, you, you'll hear of people just trying to work on their weaknesses, you know, this concept of, you know, you need to be strong across the board and, and work on your weaknesses. And, and naturally, we looked at my race and we looked at the next four years of my training through to the London 2012 Olympic Games, the home Olympic Games, like the biggest thing you could ever wish for as an athlete. I, I, when, we were, when we were awarded the 2012 Games in 2005, I remember deliberately working from that point for seven years towards making London 2012 and doing well there. And we said, well, you need to take you from semi-finalist to medalist in four years. And to do that, we needed to get about half a second quicker, which obviously in normal life is that much time. But in sporting terms, it's still quite a big gap. So we needed to go from about 44.9 seconds to under 44.5 seconds to have a chance of winning a medal. Um, and looking at my race, I was always terrible, awful at the start of the race. Like out of the, the blocks in the drive phase, I was like, I'd get left behind by the rest of my competitors. Um, and then at the end, I'd catch them up, <laughs> thanks to my nice endurance training background. Explosive, explosiveness of, of the start of the race, that's where you felt you were not performing as well as in terms of more of the endurance part. Basically, yeah. So I had like I had my strengths and weaknesses, and my strengths were certainly at the endurance end of the race, and not at the power generating start of the race, not at the very first sprinters phase of the race, as it were. So I had these strengths and weaknesses, and logically we said, well, if you can get as good as the rest of the guys at the start of the race, then you'll get half a second off your time for free. Like, and we also said that well, everybody else at your level. And you talked about these small differences, you know. Um, everyone else at your level, they can run the 200 meters a second quicker than you. They can run the 100 meters half a second quicker than you. And they all train the other way. They all, most of the elite, like elite 400 meter runners train like the sprint method rather than the endurance method. And so logically, we all said, myself, my coach, the people that paid my bills at British Athletics, um, said, well, you probably need to do it that way too <laughs> because you're terrible at the start and you don't everyone else does it this way so let's move the emphasis to make you a very very good elite sprinter and use your natural endurance ability on top of that that was that was what we decided to do um and let's, it seems sensible let's dig deeper a little bit into that so i mean i'm i'm definitely not an olympic athlete so and some listeners not as well so what does it mean when you train for the endurance part or for the sort of explosive part so in terms of 100 meters like how is it how's the training different for so that so we like it takes it makes quite a fundamental difference in almost what you do most days of training so uh anyone that's keen on going to the gym they'll be familiar with a certain sort of talked about rep ranges that are classed as power reps or sets and endurance reps or sets so you might do 
lower duration but higher intensity work in the gym so i might i would switch to doing you know more olympic lifts of eight sets of two but at quite a heavy weight for example instead of five sets of five or three sets of ten on different lifts so there's a that's a spectrum there for developing certain types of muscle fibers and if you want to develop the fast switch muscle fibers which we know we need for fast sprinting then we normally move the rep ranges closer to that eight sets of two in order to take advantage of putting more force quickly, which is known to develop these type 2x muscle fibers quicker. So in the gym, there's that. On the track, it would be a case of instead of really working on the aerobic side of the 400 meters, we'd work more on the alactic side, the ATP energy production, making sure I was very technically adept out of the blocks, making sure I had a very fast 100 meter time, a very fast 200 meter time, um, and just doing more like sprinters training, which would, wouldn't go that far, but would be a much higher intensity for lesser duration. Um, so just a real shift in the emphasis you place. And sometimes it wouldn't be much different. You know, so we'd still do aerobic work, but we wouldn't place as much importance on it as we used to. And we'd probably add some new elements in on the power side, for example. So the actual differences are like quite, quite large, you know. Um, but larger is the emphasis, like the, the underlying reason, principles of what you're trying to work on in training. Um, and that really was the big big change I was trying to make my weaknesses my strengths really and um, and sort of do it like everybody else did now you can probably see where I'm going with this story because um, uh, if we fast forward four years from the Beijing Olympic Games to the day before selection for the London 2012 games I went from number one in the country in 2008 and I went to number seven in the country in 2012 I went from running 45 seconds and then occasional 44 seconds in 2008 and I got about a second slower so I fast forward four years I was running 46 seconds and occasionally running 45 seconds instead of the 45 and 44 so I basically the change and a few other things but a lot of stuff went wrong basically <laughs> over those four years and I ended up horribly and I still, you know, still, still a big, you know, still a painful memory for me. Actually, I missed out on the home Olympic Games. I, I didn't. I not only didn't win a medal like the aim was. I didn't even get there. You know, I spent seven years working towards this goal. I didn't get there at all. I missed out on the team by one place. They take six people, but still, I had gotten worse over those four years. So it's quite a painful learning experience in trial and error. And. I want to ask a little bit more about the Olympics. If you look at the world records across board of different, um, different, different um, uh, uh, competitions on on Olympics, I mean the world records have. I mean, if you look at what they did like 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, it's a completely different story today. So, what have been the like biggest reasons? I mean, are, are people more people? getting better at training or um, why is it that uh, uh, well, I, I think there's myriad, myriad reasons really like there's there's certainly better technology in the surfaces in the shoes and um, in training methods so if we talk about the actual surface of the track even um, there's there's two kinds of track we know traditionally we know this uh, track which we call tartan which is laid by having molten rubber which is then poured out and left to set. 
and that's the one which is like lots of little bits you will have seen that in a, a track and field field um, but nowadays when you go to a major championship it has to be of a certain um, a certain surface made by a company called Mondo and this is laid like a carpet it's already made it doesn't it's not molten and this um, it almost like it doesn't absorb the power as much it reflects the power so when you hit the ground you put the force down and the force is less absorbed by the surface of the track and it's actually reflected more so that's a that's the important factor and in in track and field we search out races that are made of the faster tracks the faster surfaces so that's certainly an element and then of course there's the natural human progression the like either psychological or physiological whatever it is that when somebody runs fast then more people seem to be able to run fast as soon as Usain Bolt arrived on the scene suddenly we had three other guys who could run times that used to be world records you know there's a there's a certain psychological factor which happens and then we also just have i think developments in sports science have pushed coaching forward traditionally track and field athletes didn't used to lift weights originally you know um and then when they did start lifting weights they probably did it too much they put on too much bulk and they did it too much like a weightlifter would and it started to shift towards actually functional strength training or using you know your sport as the guideline as to how you lift your weights etc just as a very basic example there's been a lot of sports science developments which have certainly made made training methods more effective across the board that's not to say everyone's using them but it's probably an upward trend and that will be a certain underlying factor i'm sure for uh, why we improve yeah when i when i spoke to this olympic athlete uh, mika potala he's he's uh, one of the top people in the world in ice skating he said that he has a very unconventional way to train for ice skating most of the people they basically train ice skating but what he trains is things like uh, like heavy lifting for example yeah right yeah lactic threshold and uh, which event does he do um, on ice skating is he a speed skater uh, um, yeah, speed, yeah. speed yeah right yeah he also said that he trains um, by actually doing uh, uh, skateboarding and, yeah. and this is another uh, and bicycling while everyone else is like during summertime training with these roller skates he's finding unconventional ways to train and uh, these small differences in the way how he trains uh, heavy lifting and uh, um, training something else than ice uh, speed skating is making the difference in competition to him so um, have you noticed something similar in training for running for example yeah i mean for sure like you know nobody has ever nobody has ever yet been able to define what the perfect program is actually for you know for for a certain event in track and field and i work very closely um and very good friends with um a guy called greg rutherford who is the olympic world european champion at the long jump and his training is quite different than most people would consider like elite for the long jump he spends a lot of his time just alone he built a long jump runway in his back garden and um and he just does like goes for long walks in the woods with his dogs and he runs up some steps in the forest and uh, and then he does some long jump occasionally whereas you know in and and it's just what works for one just doesn't always work for another um and of course like there there is a genetic factor to that there's a lot of other factors too there's environment what makes you happy what you're preferences your training history etc so the, the the key is to try and just find the underlying themes and then 
deviate on these themes that I believe to you know see what works for you as the individual rather than what worked for somebody else and I think that's where I fell down I got too caught up in well everybody else at my level does it this way therefore I should do it that way too and you know just to bring it back to the genetics like what happened for me was when I finally came across this technology uh, co-founder Avi sent me a swab and it, it spoke so personally to my learning my trial and error over those years that I just wished I'd had this extra layer of information it wouldn't have changed everything but it was an important factor and I want to point out one particular result to to give you an example of that there's a gene called the ACTN3 gene if you've ever looked into sporting genetics or ever read anything about it you will have come across this gene it's like the most talked about gene in terms of sports or power um, when it comes to genes and with this gene you can have three genotypes and um, the CC version the CT or TT sometimes they're called RR RX and XX but basically you can have the C version two copies of it two copies of the T version or one of each that's that's what you can build from this gene and the C version of this gene is found in 97% of Olympic level sprinters so that's very, very common in elite power athletes. Um, one of the reasons for that, we think, um, is that because the C version is the active version, it generates the protein actin in three. And this protein is very good at building fast twitch muscle fiber if you do the right impetus. If you give it the stimulus which builds fast twitch muscle fiber, that protein is really efficient at building it. Without the C version, if you've got TT, you don't, generate that fast twitch muscle fiber at any sort of the similar rate you're, you're much less efficient at building fast twitch muscle fiber from the same impetus and i'm in that three percent i don't have the c version i'm an olympic level sprinter but i'm the anomaly when it comes to that particular gene i mean the the very small minority and perhaps that's one of the reasons why when i switched to the sprint method of training i tried to build more fast twitch muscle fibers i was doing it the wrong way I was doing it how everybody else did because they most likely had this version of that gene and I didn't. And so it was just one little piece of information and you can see how it, it can change how we respond to a different stimuli. Hmm. Uh, we, we released in, um, in Finland the Biohackers Handbook chapter on exercise a few weeks ago, 200 pages and almost 500 references. I'm working on that with a medical doctor, uh, Oli Sovjarvi, and a nutrition specialist, Jaakko Halmento. And uh, in, in that book, we go through some of these uh, genes and, and markers that you can look for. Um, the, according to different studies, there is about 200 different genes that um, uh, affect the physical performance. And out of those uh, 20, uh, variants have been linked to elite athletes. Mm -hmm. uh, so in terms of the testing that you do at DNA Fit, you definitely are much deeper into this. Um, so, so what are the sort of general areas? I would, I would think and, and believe and also based on some of the examples that we've taken out, uh, some of those things are related to um, the muscle fiber types. That must be a big one. Uh, then there is uh, things that are related to inflammation for example so what is your 
Uh, so we have like four, um, let's say, markers or pieces of information on the fitness side. So we have this power or endurance response um, algorithm. That's the, the genetic variants which are associated with their response to a different training stimulus, like the ACTN3 gene, like the ACE gene, which is the second most talked about. We've got a panel of genes there which are the most researched and the most valid, as it were, around um, how we respond to a different type of training impetus. Um, then we have this VO2 max trainability marker. So there are a selection of genes which influence almost how much genetic resistance you get to improving your VO2 max. Like big threshold. Would, would, would something like MCT1 be, uh, MCT1 be part of that? Well, MCT1 didn't pass our um, inclusion protocol. So we have um, like a strict inclusion protocol to make sure what we're reporting on is actually definitely right to report on. And I think MCT one's on our watch list. It's very close, um, but it doesn't yet have our minimum uh, amount of peer review studies, and it's not necessarily um, past the other two markers, which are that they're on humans, and that lastly that there's something modifiable you can do to support or cancel out that uh, that gene's activity. So MCT one's on our watch list. Um, but it's not past our scientific advisory board's inclusion protocol yet. Right, right. Yeah. So I, th I think it would make sense to jump into some of those examples of the reports that you generate. It makes more sense. Yes, for yeah, sure. Start geeking on the specific genotypes right there. So um, I'll just, um, if it's okay, if I turn on the screen sharing, is there any specific report you want me to pull out first? Well, let's take um, let's take a look at your uh, power and endurance um, page. So that would be on the fitness report, um, and then uh, if you're on the PDF, then it's page seven, I believe. If you're on the online version, then it's just the first the first marker. Yeah, just a second. So here we are, the fitness report. Yeah. So go down to the first one on the left there, power endurance profile. Right, so you see there, we, we've got this sort of algorithm that we use, um, which takes into account all the genes below and creates like a percentage uh, of responder there. So um, you're what I would call like a mix with endurance bias. So you're quite similar to me, actually, team. Um, but there's a very key difference I can see straight away. Uh, so the, the, we have this selection of, um, of genes which we know uh, are associated with better response to power or endurance impetus, right? And we, we take all these genes into account and we put them through our protocol, um, which is the algorithm we call the peak performance algorithm. And we just published some research actually two weeks ago um, in the Biology of Sport Journal on using this power endurance algorithm for a genetically guided resistance training program, um, which was really good. So what I can see here is we can look at, um, for example, click on the learn more button next to ACTN3. So the third gene down, click on learn more. And so you'll see there, there's the three genotypes which I talked about. You have CC, CT, or TT. So you're actually a CC holder. So you're with those 97% of Olympic level sprinters team. I mean, you've got the CC version of the ACTN3 gene. Um, the I could be a hey, Well, we all could be. That's the point, actually. We all could be an Olympic sprinter. You know, I don't have it. I am. 
um, you have it, you're not an Olympic sprinter. So what we focus on is how to make the best of the environment with genetic knowledge in mind. So the interaction between genetics and environment, not using genetics solely on its own to say this is that or this can be this or this won't be this. Um, it's very, very important that we, we make that clear. So within whatever goal you're trying to reach, we can then take say um, into account this power endurance hour. The reason we communicate it as a percentage rather than just tell you about that one gene is that of course there's a selection of genes here that are all playing a role. And I always use the example of, let's say hypothetically we knew there were uh, five genes responsible for being very, very tall, like for being eight foot tall, like ridiculously tall, right? And if we've got the five genes, but we ignore four of them and we only test one and this one says you're going to be uh, really tall but then the other four are the ones which would if we tested them said you're going to be very small then we don't get a correct interpretation of the science because we've only looked at one of the factors so you've got that particular version of the ACTN3 gene but then you've got a selection of the other gene results which are more endurance responders so in the end you end up with a slight bias towards the endurance response that's why we communicate it as a percentage rather than just you have this gene you have this gene yeah 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 it's um it's certainly in terms of uh, running, cycling, and, and so on. There is, uh, I'm very good at like 100 meters, like I used to be when I was younger. But uh, definitely, when it comes to some some type of endurance, uh, there is a threshold where I <laughs> just like without training it really. Really, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the, yeah, that's the there's there's. There's a lot of um, we all have differences, and, and those differences are never simply explained as just saying this this gene or or it's not you know there's there's so many factors to performance and that's why we can't use genetics yet as a predictor or a talent id and everybody wants us to be <laughs> ask you one thing about epigenetics yes <laughs> so possible to influence with your environmental factors your training regimen the way how these things work so you won't, what, what you won't change is the actual genotype you have um, and you, you you may have caught recently there's a big furore actually in the scientific community about you know is epigenetics like that influential versus not the way I rather put it is just say well the genotype you have is this and we want to make sure that what you do also uh, takes advantage of how you're made and what you have like genetically so for example you've got that ACTN3 gene that's quite good at building fast twitch muscle fiber. If you don't do anything which builds fast twitch muscle fiber, you're not going to build fast twitch muscle fiber. There's a whole swathe of the population who have this gene who aren't Olympic sprinters. Um, so it's a case of, when we talk about epigenetics, it's a case of like, what does our activity, our lifestyle, our environment, our exercise, our nutrition, how, does, how might the ideal version of that differ based on what we also possess on a genetic level or how we're born um, and it's just rather than being blind to this side being blind to the genetic factor we just send here's that information too so we can be better informed to make the two meet at the place that we want them to meet basically got it got it so i basically have the basic building blocks for something but uh they're not gonna manifest themselves unless I actually train for them. For, for exactly, you know, like it, it, there's, we can't just be born 
and not do any exercise and then be very good, be Olympic level sprint. You know, there's no two ways about it. It's when we find the right interaction between what we do and how we're made that hopefully we get a bit further along that performance path. Um, and that's, that's really how we use it, yeah. So, so when I signed up for your service, uh, I did that long before we actually know, knew that I would, we would, we would be yes, having a yeah, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Showing up some of these results uh, in some of my presentations, what's possible today when you, when you take, the, take your genome. And uh, I did my testing in 23andMe, and I can upload that code into DNA Fit, and you can do the analysis. And uh, it, it tells me definitely much more about uh, about my 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 um, uh, fitness as well as uh, also the nutritional side than what Twenty Three and Me can tell me. So so you have used a lot of time in developing this specifically for athletes or a- anyone really interested in uh, in looking at their diet or exercise and and how to then take take those things into account in in um, customizing these things it being meals or it being exercise regimens so so what are the sort of practical tools that you can then provide i mean what are these reports telling me for example okay so i have now these things so so are you giving me practical advice on what to do or, yeah. and what to train for so um in terms of the fitness side of things uh we try to um, only really give the genetic side of advice. So there's a, there's a couple of different things we can do. So let's say you've got the um, the higher risk of the injury uh, you know, um, predisposition genetics. So let's say you've got the the higher risk versions of GDF5, Col1A1, and Col5A1. Um, these are associated with a, a higher predisposition to certain injuries, connective tissue injuries in particular, like Achilles tendinopathy, patellar tendinopathy. What we do actually on the, the realistic, actionable side of it is to say, well, just because you've got them doesn't mean you're going to be injured, but we might need to place a higher importance on the right preventative measures um, in your program compared to somebody else. And then on the nutrition side, we do have like a semi sort of end-to-end solution. So we've got a whole information of genetic uh, insights on nutrition, and then we take that into account and we use it um, to, we've got this meal planner service. Um, So someone can come into this meal planner service, sign up, and they give us their goals, their preferences, or I don't like eggs, for example, or, um, you know, I I like lots of spinach, (laughs) something like that. And then we also add in their genetic data. And that system is quite clever. It scrapes um, Yumly the online recipe database for meals which would match the preferences and the genetic macronutrient recommendations um, and generates meals they, you know, on a weekly, monthly, daily basis. Um, and if you're in the UK, you can even uh, automatically populate your online supermarket basket with the ingredients needed for all the meals that we give out in the meal planner. So there's practical advice. There's also just advice that you need to add into your lifestyle as is uh, suitable for you as a person. So, you know, if, you, um, if you're trying to run a marathon, your training needs are very, very different than someone that's trying to become an Olympic powerlifter. So we're very yeah. cautious to not be over-prescriptive in the actual action, rather than just to give you the tools to make better informed decisions. Let me share the screen again. I, I show some results from the, uh, from the diet side. Let me mm-hmm. see. And, uh, 
I have a little summary, summary right here. Very good. Some of the markers. Whoops. Just a second. Yeah. Can you see yeah. this? Got it. Yeah. So what we have here is carbohydrate sensitivity and saturated fat sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Seems like uh, those are not on uh, on a very strong side, either one of them. So now there is a huge boom in terms of, let's say, I'm drinking a, a butter coffee right now. So okay, yeah. 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 Uh, everyone is saying that high fat is the best thing ever. Um, what are you saying about this? Well, that, that's a very important point, actually, because nutrition advice is the most wildly different, like, realm of science you know from being told most of our lives that we need to eat really low fat and high starch and high grains and high carbohydrates the current trend for deliberately high fat and almost no starch or grains and and the thing is like you know the real nutrition plan that works is the one that you can stick to that's the that's the truth of it you know whatever you can adhere to then that's going to be the one for you but there's some genetic differences which might mean we may be more scared of a certain macronutrient or a little bit more careful with a certain macronutrient content than the next person so for example the current trend is to just eat all the fat right <laughs> that's 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 the current trend eat all the fat guys you know yeah. however um there's for example let's take a gene called the fto gene so on the saturated fat panel there you'll see the fifth one down is called fto and you've got the tt version of this gene the other versions you can have are AT or AA. Um, now, this gene, if you have the AA version in the studies, so there's one particular study, Sonostat, took 23,000 uh, people and they put them into the three genotypes, AA, AT, and TT of FTO. And interestingly, as they fed them more fat, people didn't get more body fat apart from the AA version holders. So the people with the AA version of the FTO, as they increased their fat consumption, they also saw a negative body composition uh, increase. And there's a factor. This is the salt. Yeah. That, that's, the, that's the FTO gene, sorry, yeah. Um, and so there's one gene, just to give an example, that, okay, the trend right now is to eat all the fat, high fat. And the chances are that that's better than eating all the carbohydrates. But in certain people, they might still need to be a little bit careful with their fat content if they're looking to not be fat, you know. Um, so it's just about changing your perception of what's good advice. Is that, you know, there's no one correct good way to, to eat. You have to find it. And maybe with more information, we're better equipped to find that correct way for us. Right. There is now... Uh, a lot of discussion about uh, one specific gene, uh, APOE4, mm. which is actually quite high in the uh, Nordic population. That's right. Especially for Chinese people. And uh, that seems to be linked to, uh, I mean, with high cholesterol, it seems to be a higher risk for um, uh, all kinds of uh, cardiovascular disease as well as Alzheimer's and, and so on. Yeah. Uh, yet again, uh, it seems that those people who have the APOE4 uh, genotype they they seem to be also uh, more intelligent on average than other people. <laughs> yeah. and there's sort of also interesting links with APOE4 and uh, concussion. There's you know there's a few interesting things that we don't have APOE4, and it's for one key reason is that 
it is also linked to serious medical conditions like Alzheimer's. Um, and we deliberately do not report on anything that could be diagnostic or bad news. Um, so the reason being that we sp stick specifically to fitness and nutrition, and there is not necessarily a clearly actionable environment or lifestyle change um, that we could take to uh, you know, reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. And that's where some of the controversy comes with 23andMe, for example, is that some people aren't ready for the knowledge, ready for the information. Um, and still, they give the information and it may be misconstrued as being very bad news when actually you're only raising your risk, you know, um, from 9, you know, 1% to 1.2%. But that also, that sounds like a significant risk when it comes to something as serious as Alzheimer's. So we don't use APO, APOE4 because, again, it doesn't pass our inclusion protocol. It doesn't have a clearly modifiable, actionable lifestyle change um, which you can use to, uh, you know, effectively cancel out the any negative uh, connotation or any um, sort of difference in uh, in that gene's expression that you would wish to do so. So we're very, very cautious on only giving you something which has a clear, actionable lifestyle path or change to support or cancel out the gene's activity. I want to pick one more thing from here. So that's the vitamin D, and there is a lot of recommendations on taking more vitamin D than is the, the, the usual recommendation, national yes. recommendation. Yeah. And, uh, in my case, uh, I mean, here it reads raised, and I definitely know from blood testing that I need to take like 10 times more than other people on average to just to, yeah. get, just to get the same, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, th I think this is evident of, of the kind of like individual differences that we have. Like, I mean, uh, people respond differently to these things. That's right. So you're depending on this version of the gene, it's called the vitamin D receptor gene, the VDR gene. Um, and with, with differences in this gene, you either have sort of the normal or a slightly impaired ability to um, to absorb vitamin D and, and calcium into the bone structure and so on. So you know, we should all be to probably be taking more vitamin D than the recommended daily allowance anyway. Um, but certain genotypes put that need ever so slightly higher and you have sort of half of the raised need there with the vdr gene you've got um and you know it's good that you're taking taking larger and you've monitored it with blood tests so you can see what the actual real time um, outcome of that is uh whereas it, you know some people won't be as high a need as you so it's no there's no less need there's just the average or raised when it comes to vitamin d vitamin b omega-3 and antioxidants I, w I want to pick one more thing. Um, one thing that comes out of my my genetic testing, uh, I, I discovered this from 23andMe first. It was about uh, I'm, I'm someone who accumulates very easily high iron ferritin uh, serum ferritin levels, mm -hmm. and I have confirmed that from blood testing that that's definitely the case. And now there is a you know huge boom saying that hey you should everyone should be eating. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a lot yeah. of grass-fed beef. Yes, yeah. and, uh, that I, I'm definitely responding to that kind of diet by having higher iron levels. So I have to either donate um, uh, blood or I have to um, uh, kill it, kill it some in some way. Uh, yeah. iron. And I've done things like using lactoferrin and using uh, seaweeds like spirulina and chlorella to bind the excess uh, iron while I'm eating. Um, red meat, as well as when I'm eating very, uh, very dark uh, green 
leafy vegetables. And yeah. it seems to work. So I, I like the combination of taking the genetic testing, and that gives you some basic assumption. Then you test it out, and you look at the uh, other biomarkers and, and, and see if there is any kind of... Uh, um, effect really uh, well, that, that's the key you know it's like our, our genetics don't change this genotype is static you'll take this test once and then you'll always have that version of the vdr gene you know um so then you have that really powerful combination of if you are able to monitor your actual biomarkers in the live variable sense we have this static piece of information as a foundation and then we have the variable lifestyle changes which you can measure to sort of lend a, um, a real-time result to that static uh, part of the the genetics so that's the that's the real ideal we say identify the static part and then you know measure the variable part until you reach like the ideal lifestyle and environment for that nature for that genetic factor yeah yeah and then 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 one more thing about things like uh, stimulants and medication and so on how people respond to those things uh, I, I see here, uh, I have on the detox ability, I have CIP1A2, and mm -hmm. um, I guess that's uh, that I'm a fast metabolizer of, of caffeine, if yeah. I remember correctly. That's that's right, yeah. So the CYP1A2 enzyme is responsible for almost all of caffeine metabolism. Um, and, of course, there's, there's a kind of trainability to caffeine tolerance um, <laughs> as well. Um, but generally, in, in, in the studies, that the fast metabolizers, even when they had excess caffeine in excess of 300 milligrams a day, they didn't see um, any of the adverse effects, whereas the slow metabolizers did. Um, and I'm a fast metabolizer, and I've always been a very big drinker of caffeine. I take much more caffeine than is normally recommended pre-competition, and I feel absolutely fine with it, whereas slow metabolizers tend to be a little bit more anxious, a little bit more jittery, uh, et cetera, even with the same sort of caffeine history. Um, and so, again, it's just that small factor which changes not everything. doesn't say you won't have caffeine or you should have caffeine. It just changes maybe how much you take or when you take it, for example. That's one of the interesting parts of, uh, of future research as well is do fast metabolizers benefit ergogenically from caffeine dosage closer to a composition than slow metabolizers, for example? Right. Yeah, I, I definitely don't have a problem having coffee in the evening. I'm actually drinking one right now. Well, Finland so, are the biggest coffee consum consumers in the world, I believe, aren't they? So, um, <laughs> so you hope you've got the fast metabolism gene there. Yeah. yeah we are biggest coffee consumers, uh, but at the same time, also we drink the worst coffee in the world. I hope that will change <laughs> with all that stuff. Now, uh, here is a little summary of some of my. Um, uh, genetic markers in terms of the fitness report and I see that I have a high injury risk and uh, then again I'm a very fast uh, uh, in terms of recovery and I have definitely witnessed that one uh, I tell you a little anecdotal um, story here three weeks ago I dislocated my shoulder completely from the socket um, and uh, that was painful so I I basically um, pushed my pushed, pushed the arm back into its socket and um, I immediately started the protocol, everything I know from biohacking, to make sure that uh, the, the fluids uh, get circulated around that area. So one thing that I did uh, was to apply cold for 20 minutes, and then I applied immediately after that actually a little bit of heat as well as uh, electrostimulation on the mm -hmm. area, and then I applied more, more of the cold side. I didn't take any of the anti-inflammatory drugs because yeah. inflammation sort of what is needed right there at that time. I immediately, immediately started 
brewing reindeer bones, um, and I made this yeah. bone and I was drinking it um, like yeah. all the time for uh, a week. And um, three weeks after, I mean, I did uh, yesterday. I ha I I did a hundred push-ups and uh, uh, twenty pull-ups. <laughs> No problem. I'm, I That's think more push than I can do, TV. So, yeah. Normally, <laughs> normally people, it takes like three months. For me, it, yeah. for me, it has been three weeks. It's, uh, I feel completely yeah. fine. Well, I, I believe it's, of course, partly because of some of the things that I did, but also partly because of uh, that I'm, I, I, I've been played the right deck of cards uh, for this kind of situation. And that, that's exactly what we want. You know, it's, part, it's, it's about what you do. And then also there's part of that factor is how you're made and what, what you've got genetically. And, and you, it sounds like, found the right interaction between your environment and your genetics in that case. Um, and particularly those recovery uh, SNPs, those, those variants there, the ones which are linked with a kind of pro-inflammatory response. And you don't have many of those bigger, like, pro-inflammatory response which would hang around for longer, cause you more of an issue on recovery on a sort of macro and uh, meso scale. Um, so, you know, you're in a, a good position to allow that natural healing process from your inflammatory response. Um, and I'm sure, like, getting your collagen and your electrostimulus and the right rehabilitation protocol also helped massively and probably more so than the genetics. But the DNA would have certainly uh, been a factor if you had someone who had the same injury and same environment. Yeah. Okay. So um, uh, there is some more reports. Let's let's take a look at. Um, Team, I might just ask you to just pause just two seconds. I have to plug in my computer. Apologies. Just uh, I have to do a quick edit where I pause that for two seconds. One second. Sorry. Thanks. Hey, team. Yeah. Good. Sorry about that. Okay. Sure. Um, let me turn on the screen sharing again. All right. So you also have this Olympian benchmark. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and I can benchmark benchmark myself against you. So so what can you say about this? Okay. So what we do this really is just like a it's a fascinating insight into how we're all very different actually. And what we do here is we um, we're growing like a team of uh, benchmarkies. So we're going to try and get a basic uh, an elite sports person in every different discipline. Um, 
that when the individual has done their DNA fit test, they can you know, just see how how they compare effectively on the on the genetic level. Um, and so, you know, we can see. Let's take we we look at um, yeah injury predisposition. You and I are pretty similar. Um, whereas when it comes to uh, power response, I've got a bit higher power response than you. Um, and you know we, your recovery speed, your um, your very much quicker than me <laughs> in that and this is really in the beta stage right now i want to make this a really beautiful user interface and experience to just sort of see how people are all very different no matter like whether you are you know actually are a an athlete or not um, it really gives you just that insight as to how we're all made differently therefore we want to change the way you approach how you're going to exercise or how you're going to approach your nutrition Fascinating, fascinating. Um, so um, you are you are just getting started here. So if anyone wants to learn more, get their own results, uh, how much does this service cost, and uh, what's in it for them? I mean, what kind of subscription is it? And uh, tell me more about the. So product. yeah, so so the product itself is actually we we have two methods. We can you can get to your DNA fit results. Um, the first method, which is the majority of our customers, they um, come to dnafit.com and they buy our, our kit, our home testing kit, which is a simple saliva swab uh, rubbed on the inside of the cheek and, and sent back in the post. Then we analyze it at the lab and your results uh, 10 days later after receiving it at the lab come into your online portal. Um, and we're redeveloping the online portal, so it's a very nice uh, graphical interface soon as well. And um, then we have the other method is... Okay, does that work for me? Can yeah, I order we, we, yeah, globally, we, we send the kits globally. Obviously, the postage takes a little bit longer, um, but that's it. So they, they go anywhere you want. Um, and we have customers from all over the world. You know, we've been around about three years now, um, and we've done tens of thousands of people all around the world. Um, and then the other method is if you've already done your 23andMe test, um, which I suspect uh, a lot of the biohacker community have you know it's, it's a natural natural part of, of biohacking actually understanding your, your uh, full genetics and then um, we have a, a an api integration with 23andme where if you've already done the 23andme test um, you can authorize dna fit to extract the genetic results that we need from your um, 23andme data and generate the dna fit reports almost instantly it takes us a few hours uh, for the system to uh, get the reports uploaded into the portal, etc. Um, and that's a little bit cheaper because there's no lab cost as well. So on the box itself, the prices go from £99 for the like most basic test up to £249, which is all the fitness and all the nutrition markers. Um, uh, so that in dollars, that comes to close to $400 at the top end and around $150 at the bottom end. But 23 me, it's a little bit cheaper, um, you know, coming in at about $300. Um, for the the full the full panel, um, for we're going to put I'm going to put a special um, a special code in. Uh, so if anyone wants to take the uh, the test, we'll we'll do it with the we with the discount code which will uh, circulate around I guess via Utimu, um, and that will bring the top end package down to 149 pounds. So we'll knock 100 pounds off the um, off the Fitness Diet Pro package. Um, to make it quite a bit considerably cheaper there, so hopefully that'll be a benefit to uh, to the community here. Absolutely, a really nice gesture, and I'm going to put that on the show notes and and send it out to everyone. Uh, also coming to the conference, uh, so if you want to learn more uh, from Andrew, 
about uh, uh, how he trains and how he he reads uh, uh, these things and how that can be applied, what you can learn from your DNA. You're definitely welcome to Biohacker Summit on 21st of May uh, to London, UK. Uh, Andrew is going to give a presentation as well as a Q&A workshop on your DNA. So that's extremely valuable and useful on top of uh, any kind of uh, self-test you can order online. So So check it out if you are even close to London during those days. So, um, um, great. Um, uh, where do you see this thing and, and also uh, the, the whole field of genetics and how that's applied practically uh, to athletic training, just about anyone from lifestyle, biohacking, whatever, you know, want to optimize yourself. Uh, what do you believe is like uh, coming? Uh, I mean, it's still early days. We, uh, we are in a moment in history when the cost of sequence in your genome has come down from a uh, hundred million, yeah. <laughs> like 10, in 2000s. And uh, today it's uh, available from uh, companies like 23andMe, you get a, not the whole genome, but a, yeah, a big slice of the genome basically. Yeah. From, so from companies like, I, I think, you know, I think really where, where we're going with this is a, a greater understanding in, in research, of course, um, you know, from 23andMe really pushing forward a lot of the, um, the larger health risk research around, around genetics as well as their ancestry reports. And what, what we're really trying to do is use the genetic data for action. So we recently published this study on the genetic algorithm for personalized resistance training. And as part of this study, we, we looked at these athletes that were either in a genetically matched or a genetically mismatched uh, group um, based on their resistance. And we used that power or endurance um, algorithm to choose the mismatching on the matching. And on the performance indicators, which we, we tested in, the, in the, the study, the matched group had significantly better results. So almost three times um, increased results over the same training period compared to those on the mismatched. Uh, study so like it's only a small cohort it's a first study it's a first stage but what we want to push the research forward on is the use of the data rather than just the data itself the action based on the data um, and I think that's really where we need to go with genetics it's, it's given us a lot of promise over um, since the completion of the human genome project in 2003 but it's never quite delivered on that promise yet um, and that's I really want to move away from just association to actually looking at the action of um, the interaction between our environment and our genetics. And that's really where I think the field of it needs to go, whether it's medical, pharmacogenetics, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's genetics around stress response. We did some interesting research with a military customer actually on um, you know, risk of post-traumatic stress disorder from certain genetic variants, etc., And then just turning that lab data into a tangible action to get better results. What I don't think we'll ever see is I don't think we will ever see an understanding of what makes somebody good. I don't think we'll see talent ID or predictive uh, of performance from genetics, unfortunately, because everyone gets very excited about that. I think rather we'll just see a better understanding of how to be the best we can be. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. Right, right. There is this movie, Gattaca. That's right, 90. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
that does a, that causes me a lot of work that movie like, like it causes me a lot of work where i have to re-educate uh bring people back away from the excitement of um like using genetics to determine things and actually rather using it as an extra tool and what i always say to put it in perspective is you know we like to measure our heart rate in sport or in recreational fitness but we wouldn't build our training program purely off that single metric and similarly i don't want someone to build their training program or their desires or their dreams in sport or, or athleticism based purely on the metric of genetics that's the key it's one metric in the whole picture and it's when we have the whole picture we can make a better like informed decision about how to train or how to work out how to eat right yeah i mean in medicine it has been pretty much about this reductionist philosophy uh, sort of lock and at a uh, way of atomizing the universe into uh, single building blocks and seeing how it unfolds. And it seems, I mean, that things are so connected that you can't really judge things based on a little detail. I mean, a good example comes to my mind is just to look at your total cholesterol level and then judging your lifestyle choice based on that. We have to go deeper. We have to look at the interaction between different things. And I, I found out uh, through practically doing these tests, um, and thanks also to your uh, your great work and, and reports, uh, that combining genetic testing with uh, other biomarkers and looking at your blood work, and actually then uh, uh, then then looking at your diet, looking at your exercise regimen, and seeing is there a response really um, that that you can read from some of these early reports um, I mean we are still discovering new things uh, and uh, it's definitely going to be a decade of uh, genetics and a new understanding that unfolds from there yeah I, I agree you know and, and although commercially I would love to be able to say that this is the only thing you need to know like I'm much much happier when people are use this in conjunction with everything else so they just have a better view of the picture um, rather than being blind to the genetic part of it all right, thank you, Andrew. This this was great. Uh, just uh, give anyone anyone out there a tip on if they want to perform better, uh, be a better version of themselves. So, so what is your sort of life lessons? Uh, what would you pay uh, pay for? What would you look for? What are the lessons in your life if you would have known that um, earlier, uh, you would be performing better even in Olympics? Well, I I really believe in just playing to your strengths, managing weaknesses, but but just really focusing on your strengths. And I think whether that's in sport or in life, I think we need to identify what we're very, very good at and be really great at that. And then if we need to delegate or need to just manage the weaknesses rather than try to make your weaknesses your strengths. So I've like, that's my, that was my trial and error, my learning in sport. And I, I really try to apply that into my life. You know, I'll probably never be an accountant. Um, therefore, I'm not going to try and be. <laughs> I'm not going. I'm going to delegate that work in our business to somebody else. Um, but you know, I really believe on focusing on your strengths, and I think having data and information is the real step forward into make a tangible decision about you know where your strengths lie and how do we identify that to make the best of ourselves.